found several works of significant aid. Deirdre Le Fay's edition of Austen's Letters, Jane Austen's Letters, Oxford University Press, Oxford, 1995, was as always invaluable. A Sea of Words by Dean King, Henry Holt, New York, 1995, was a useful lexicon for translating the terms of art relevant to Nelson's Navy. J. H. and E. C. Hubbock, descendants of Francis Austin and the authors of Jane Austen's Naval Brothers, Meckler Publishing, Westport, Connecticut, 1986, reprinted, are greatly to be thanked. Naval Surgeon, The Voyages of Dr. Edward H. Cree, Royal Navy, as related in his private journals, 1837-1856, Michael Levian, Editor, E. P. Dutton, New York, 1981, was absorbing and informative. Band of Brothers, Boy Seamen in the Royal Navy, David Philipson, Naval Institute Press, Annapolis, 1996, enlightened me regarding the young gentlemen at sea during the late Georgian period. Men of War, Life in Nelson's Navy by Patrick O'Brien, W. W. Norton and Company, New York, 1974, offered a pithy and light-hearted survey of fighting ships. But nothing compares to the tome that is The Oxford Illustrated History of the Royal Navy, General Editor J. R. Hill, Oxford University Press, Oxford, 1995. If time permitted, I would be reading it still. I am deeply grateful for the generosity and scholarly depth of Dr. Clive Kaplan and William C. Kelly, members of the Jane Austen Society of North America, who shared their knowledge, resources, and enthusiasm for Austen's naval connections with me in conversations and letters over the past few years. The fine naval fervor of Austen's most intelligent fans is a constant inspiration. Stephanie Barron Jane and the Prisoner of Wool House Chapter 1 A Passage Down the Solent Monday, 23 February, 1807, Southampton Had I suffered the misfortune to be born a man, I should have torn myself early from the affections of my family and all the comforts of home, and thrown my fate upon the mercy of the seas. That fresh salt slap, as bracing as a blow, the bucking surge of wave upon wave, a riderless herd never to be bribed or charmed into complacence, the endless stretch curbed by no horizon, that must unfold an infinite array of wonders before the eyes, exotic climes, benighted peoples, lost cities set like rubies among the desert chasms. Oh, to sail the seas as my brothers have done before me, free of obligation or care beyond the safety of one's self and one's men, free of the confines of home and earth-bound hopes, and all the weight of convention like an anchor about one's neck. Casting my eye across the extent of Southampton water to the new forest opposite, verdure indistinct behind a scrim of morning fog, I shuddered from suppressed excitement as much as from the chill rising off the sea. From my position on Southampton's Watergate Quay, I might dip my hand for a time in the cold current of English history. Southampton Water and the Solent that runs between the mainland and the Isle of Wight just south have ever been the point of departure for great adventure, for risk and high daring, and fortunes made or lost. Here the troops of King Henry embarked for the Battle of Agincourt. Here the Puritan colonists hauled anchor for the New World. 
It is impossible to stand within sight and sound of the heaving grey waters and be deaf to their siren call, and not for Jane Austen to resist the force that has bewitched so many hearts of oak. A forest of masts bobbed and swayed under my gaze, men-o'-war newly anchored from Portsmouth, merchant vessels and whalers from the far corners of the Atlantic, Indiamen, rich and fat with the spoils of Bombay, and a thousand smaller craft that skimmed the surface of the Solent like a legion of water-beetles. Hoarse cries of boatmen and the creak of straining ropes resounded across the waves, a snatch of sea-shanty, an oath swiftly quelled. The smell of brine and pitch and boiling coffee wafted to my reddened nostrils. This was life, in all its unfettered boldness, and these were Englishmen at their most honest and true, a picture of glory enough to drive a thousand small boys from their warm beds and send them barefoot to the likeliest ship, hopeful and unlettered, ill-fed and mendacious as to right age and family, for the sake of a creaking berth among the rats and the bilge-water below. Where I returned in spirit to the days of my girlhood, a child of seven sent to school in Southampton, I might be tempted to steal my brother's academy uniforms and stow away myself. "'Are you quite certain you wish to accompany me to Portsmouth, Jane?' inquired my brother Frank anxiously at my elbow. I turned, the pleasant reverie broken. I should never have quitted my bed at such an early hour fly for anything less. You could not prevent me from boarding that hoy at anchor if you were to set upon me with wild dogs. It was necessary to suggest bravado. The hoy, with a single mast bobbing in the swell, was rather a small coasting vessel when viewed against the backdrop of so much heavy shipping, and I am no sea-woman. The weather shall certainly be brisk, my brother persisted doubtfully. The wind is freshening, and I fancy we shall have rain before the day is out. I do not regard a trifling shower, I assure you, and the air is no warmer in our lodgings. Mrs. Davis is of a saving nature, and does not intend that we shall ever be adequately served if our discomfort might secure her a farthing. My mother felt a spur beyond petulance and imagined ills when she took to her bed after Christmas. She knows it to be far more comfortable than Mrs. Davis's fire. I must lay in a supply of fuel for our own use, Frank murmured. I had done so in December, but the faggots disappeared at an unaccountable rate. That we shall lay to Sister Mary's account, I replied sardonically. It cannot be remarkable that so cold-hearted a lady must require a good steady fire. Her frame should lack animation entirely fly without external application of heat. He looked at me in hurt surprise. Jane, not your excellent creature, my dear, I said quickly. I speak entirely of James's Mary. You know that I have never borne her any affection, nor she but a pretense of the same for me. I would to heaven that my brothers had possessed the foresight to marry women of singularity, in their names at least. Two of the Austin men having chosen Elizabeth's and another two Mary's, we are forever attempting to distinguish them one from the other. My elder brother James had brought his unfortunate wife Mary to stay with us in our cramped lodgings over Christmas-tide. This was meant to be a great treat, but my relief at the James Austen's departure far outweighed any pleasure won from their arrival. Frank grasped my elbow. Steady, Jane. The skiff approaches. 
A long, low-slung boat with two ruddy-faced fishwives at the oars had swung alongside the quay. It bobbed like a cockle-shell in the tide, and I should as readily have stepped into an inverted umbrella. I summoned my courage, however, so as not to disoblige my excellent brother. "'Pray take my arm,' Frank urged. "'It is best not to step heavily, and not directly onto the gunwale's mind, or you shall have us all over. Just so. And there you are settled.' Capital. Frank stowed himself neatly beside me on the damp wooden slat that served as seat, and began to whistle for wind. I attempted to ease my grip on the skiff. As the two women bent their backs to the task of conveying us across the water to the single-masted hoy, which, despite its diminutive nature, Frank asserted might serve as a respectable gunboat in any but home waters, I struggled to maintain my composure. I had never crossed the Solent, much less been aboard a ship, before, but I refused to earn the contempt of the British Navy. I should throw myself overboard rather than admit to a craven heart, or plead for a return to shore. It had long been my chief desire to be swung in a chair to the very deck of one of my brother's commands, the Canopus, when Frank captained her, or the Indian, should Charles ever return from the North American station but we had always lived beyond the reach of naval ports, and our visits to the sea were matters of bathing and assemblies. My mother's decision to settle with Frank in Southampton, a mere seventeen miles from the great naval yard at Portsmouth, must ensure frequent occasion for familiarizing myself with ships and sailors' customs and all the ardent matter of my brother's lives that have demanded such sacrifice and conveyed so much of glory and regret. Charles, my particular little brother has been master and commander of his sloop. In